Why don't you open your Bibles with me to the book of Mark. The book of Mark, chapter 9. And we are going to be um, going through 12 verses this morning that really are going to require you to think and you to engage and will challenge you um, in your faith. One of the uh, most famous pastors of the last 100 years, Adrian Rogers from the Southern Baptists, um, used to say his goal for every response to his sermon was that people left either mad, sad, or glad. He wanted people to be angry if they disagreed with the Bible. He wanted them to be, to be sad if they understood their condition right, or if they were believers, he wanted them to be glad at what they had heard. His point was, don't be apathetic. Don't walk out of this room saying, that was great, that was good, and walk out unchanged. And so we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to, to work in us so that we won't walk out unchanged. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. God, would you, through your Holy Spirit, open our ears. God, would you use my mouth to communicate truth. Father, would your word be glorified today as we glorify you. Jesus, we want to, to make much of you in our lives, and so change us through your own words here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me in the honor of reading of God's word? And we'll read Mark nine, thirty through 41. Mark 9, starting in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You may be seated. And as you saw in this passage, you may have heard some things that were familiar that you heard several weeks ago. And this morning what we're studying is what is called the second passion prediction of Jesus Christ. Several weeks ago, Pastor Ron preached in Mark 8, and in verse 31, we saw the theme of Jesus teaching his disciples about what was to come. And so today is the second passion prediction. Pastor Ron, in a few weeks, will teach on the third passion prediction. And remember, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's gone away from more of a public ministry, more of the crowds flocking to him and the healings and the demon exorcisms. And he is focusing on the twelve. He's focusing on this little band of men who are going to carry on when he is gone. And so, in your notes, the first point is Jesus foretells his death. Jesus foretells his death. 
And we see that just in these two verse, three verses, a little summary. Um, clearly there was more to this, but Mark makes this the kernel of what Jesus was saying to his disciples and teaching them. And so Jesus, point A, is focusing on the twelve. Jesus focuses on the twelve. And you'll note in verse 30 that they're passing through Galilee. So if you can kind of remember some of the past weeks, the transfiguration occurred probably at Mount Hermon, which is in the far north of Israel, past Galilee. And it seems that Jesus and his disciples now come back south and pass through Galilee, much as they did in the beginning chapters of Mark. And you might remember them trying to get away from the crowds. Jesus continually tries to not get stuck in one place, but to go to the cities and to preach. And again, they try to stay away from the crowds. And you see that he says he did not want anyone to know. Probably means they stayed off the main roads. They stayed away from the main cities. And they stayed distant from the crowds and from the people searching for them. In chapter 6 and chapter 7... Jesus attempted to do this, um, but was foiled by the massive crowds that wanted to take his attention and his time and his healing and his teaching. And so now Jesus is very intent on depth rather than breadth. So he's not reaching as many, but he's going very deep with a few. And that's Jesus' strategy basically from here on out. What he said to them in verse 31 is important. The Son of Man. He describes himself as the Son of Man. And in all three passion predictions, go back to chapter 8 and go forward to chapter 10, he calls himself the Son of Man each time. And a lot of times we think he's the Son of Man and it's talking about his humanity. He is the Son of Man. He's a human. Um, That would refute heresies about Jesus. But actually, the term Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. And it is a messianic, exalted term. The term is one of the Son of Man who descends with the clouds. Um, It is a glorified term. And Jesus refers to himself in that way. And he says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Very interesting thing about the word delivered here is that um, Jesus is most likely speaking Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek. Um, But a lot of times the Greek reflects the way that people would speak in Aramaic. And a lot of times when people in Aramaic would talk about God, they would not use the word God or they would not use the term God. They would stay away from it. And so here you see in verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. Passive. There's There's no subject. Who is going to be doing the delivering? And it's very likely that Mark is subtly suggesting that God, the Father... Yahweh is delivering Jesus, the Son of Man, into the hands of men. So if we had more time, we could dissect this. There is irony here where the Son of Man, the exalted Son of Man, will be delivered over into the hands of men. It echoes John 1. Jesus comes to his own, but his own do not receive him. And so we see that Jesus is teaching his disciples what is going to happen to him. And he speaks of it in terms of God being in control. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Clearly, they're not understanding what he's saying. And so he gives them confidence by by saying, it's not out of control. Um, It's not a fearful thing. God is delivering the Son of Man into the hands of men. And the next part of of the formula here is they will kill him. Back in chapter 8, it said he said these words plainly. So he's not, he's not speaking in mystery. He's not shrouding it. He's saying, they will kill me. 
very, very clearly. And this is shocking. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. You followed this man for two and a half, three years. He has raised the dead. He has healed innumerable amounts of people. And yet he says, they're going to kill me. And the disciples are wrestling, and they'll continue to wrestle with what is going on here. But Jesus is not going to hide it from them. He's plainly teaching what is going to happen. And he doesn't leave it there. When he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And so that fulfills letter B there in your notes. Jesus gives his second passion prediction. And it's interesting to see. A lot of times when you read the Bible, um, something is, is a little nugget. And it's surely they're on a road trip. Surely Jesus said more than this. And, and of course, not everything is recorded. But even the verb here is in a tense that, that, that indicates... Jesus didn't just say, turn around in the middle of a trip and say, Hey guys, I'm going to be delivered in the hands of men. They're going to kill me and I'm going to rise again. <laughs> and they keep going. No, the tense is saying... Jesus continued to say this. He didn't say it once. He, this was the topic of his teaching. He never let it go. He continually came back to it. He's hammering it in to the disciples' minds that this is going to happen. But point C, the twelve once again are confused. Twelve once again are confused. And it's really easy for us at this point to, to go, what is going on? He's so plain with them. How come these blockheads don't get it? And again, we've reminded you of this before, but it's, it's easy to get hard on the disciples and forget how our lives very often reflect this, don't they? Something clearly said in Scripture. And we, and we, we wrestle with, well, what does it mean? It, it means what God said. And let's accept what it is at face value and continue to trust and to believe. Because the disciples here, they're struggling with belief. They're struggling with trust. Look at verse 32. They did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They were failing to understand not because Jesus was talking at some elevated level. They failed to understand because they had this this lack of capacity to process what he was saying. Okay, and and so so he's saying something very plain. Okay, It's, it's a very clear sentence. But processing what that means it is making them, what does that mean? What, I don't understand. How could this happen? And their, their vision of what the Messiah should be and the vision that Jesus is teaching them are missing each other. And so the disciples don't understand. And at this point, they're afraid to ask. And many of the commentators said it's very natural they'd be afraid because last time Peter tried to say something about it, he got called Satan. So... The disciples are trying to avoid that kind of criticism. If you don't believe me, go back to, to 8.33 and look at that. Jesus literally calls Peter Satan or adversary. The disciples, though, don't understand. And as this little scene in this passage shows, Jesus is, is switching gears, and as they begin to move toward Jerusalem, he tries to point out to the twelve, this is what's going to happen. And we'll continue to see them struggle with understanding. We move on to verse 33, and here we see Roman numeral number two is status is everything. Status is everything. And this is where I tried to use the, the sermon title, says status update. Um, at first I thought it was clever, but it's actually not. Um, I was trying to incorporate Facebook and um, what's going on here, two different uses of status, right? A status update is one of those things that 
on Facebook just tells you what someone's doing, right? I ate a bagel for breakfast. Sweet, okay, that's a status update. But here, the same word is used, well, the same word's not used, but we're going to use this word to, to indicate what the disciples are wrestling with, and it's with status. And as Americans, sometimes we, we don't often understand this as well as people in a lot of different countries around the world. Um, we're the land of the free. Um, we all have rights um, from the poorest to the richest, um, government by the people, Okay, this is the kind of way that we're raised to think. But in most societies around the world, status is everything. Um, a gray head means something more than, dude, that guy's old. <laughs> Excuse me. Okay, it, it, means, it, it means they're honored. I wasn't talking about either of the Freds. <laughs> Honor is everything and status is everything. And we'll see how that plays out here. But that's important for us because even though we may not be overtly status seekers, we live in a celebrity-saturated world. And if you meet a celebrity or you run into one, all of a sudden your status goes up and you update it on Facebook. I just ran into so-and-so, right? And that, that somehow raises us in esteem, right? I remember at being at Disneyland and walking out and my brother grabs my arm and he goes, look, 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 look. And I was annoyed, so I ripped my arm out and I saw... A six foot seven African American bald man walking by, and I said, I do believe that's Kobe Bryant. And since I'm a Lakers fan and completely lost all maturity, grabbed my camera, and he was going to Frontierland, and so I kind of ran ahead and then came around and was able to snap in pictures of Kobe Bryant and then walked by and told him I loved him, which is really a mature thing to do, right? In my mind, right, in my mind, that somehow raised my status to walk by a famous person, okay? We're all laughing because that's ridiculous, but that's a trap that we fall into often. Some some of us feel like we have to follow the celebrities and know exactly what they're doing. Did you know so-and-so's pregnant? Did you? All these things, and now all of a sudden our celebrities have, have this power when they can talk to us about political things. Side note, who cares what a movie star says about politics, <laughs> okay? Um, but anyway, status. Status and honor is a big thing in this passage, and you'll see why here in a second. But point A is very important, um, verses 33 and 34, is Jesus questions the twelve. Jesus questions the twelve. And I think this scene is ironically hilarious. Read it with me, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, Jesus' headquarters, And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And and, and again, I'm going to say this till the day I die, but you must use your imagination when you're reading the Bible. You know the Bible so well, most of you, that it just goes in this monotone, boring, and you're you're done. Check, read my Bible. And I'm not saying use your imagination, make things up. And then there was a unicorn and it came. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is make make this real. If you come to Israel, it'll be a lot easier. Make this real... But by, by putting yourself in the shoes, right? So, so Jesus doesn't talk in a monotone, flat voice. When you get to the red letters in your Bible, it's not, it's not in a British accent, and it doesn't have glowing music in the background. Jesus is a man, and he talks, and he uses inflection, and he uses tones. And I can't help but read this. What were you discussing on the way? Now, this is like God's question in the garden in Genesis, right? Uh, Adam, where are you? Ad- God was not lost, 
Okay, it wasn't a game of hide and seek. God deliberately is drawing out. He's drawing out of these disciples here, Jesus is, what they're going through. In verse 34, But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I immediately thought when, when, this, when this passage came to mind, was me and my brothers arguing or fighting in a room. Mom and dad aren't there. And all of a sudden, mom shows up and says, what's going on? Right? And everyone just kind of stops, trying to think of excuses or people to blame. Right? That, that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus asks a question to the disciples, and they don't answer. They're totally silent because they're shamed and they're guilty. And they know it. Uh, what would have happened in this time is as the followers of Christ, the disciples, they literally would follow him. And, and a lot of the paths in that time, now there were some big roads, especially the Roman roads, but a lot of paths were fairly narrow as they wound through Israel. And so the disciples would follow Jesus, probably single file. Okay, so Jesus is walking and his followers, the Talmudim, as they were called, come behind Jesus. And you can kind of see them kind of hanging back a little bit and arguing and talking, as we'll find out. And, but that's the scene you should see. Okay, they're, they're following almost single file behind Jesus. And, and yes, Jesus is God, and yes, he knows what they're thinking, but I can't help but also think Jesus is listening <laughs> as it's going on and kind of shaking his head as he can hear snatches of the conversation that come to his ears. Um, he, he asked this question in verse 33 in a very interesting way. He says, what were you discussing? That's what the English Standard Version says. Uh, but the, the word in Greek is where we get the word dialogue from. And it could mean just that. What are you dialoguing about? But it also carries this implication of argument, um, of kind of headbutting. And so Jesus says, what were you dialoguing about? What was going on back there on the road trip? What were you talking about? And one commentator says um, that because they're silent, that they know enough to know that he has a rebuke for them. And so in some senses, some of the commentators said they wait in resignation for the rebuke to come because they know that they are guilty. Verse 35, Jesus sits down and is what a rabbi would do to teach. He sits down, which I think is great because then all the, everyone else would stand up. So some week we need to try this where I sit down and you all stand and listen. That would be a good, good thing, but for another time. Jesus sits down and he calls the twelve. And notice how he does this. This, this. this scene is one of compassion. Okay? He doesn't react like most of us do. Okay? And immediately yell. Okay? He, he, he says, come here guys. Gather around. And he sits down. And so they know, okay, he's about to start teaching. He's about to give it to us. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And that introduces this section, letter B in your notes. Leaders are last. Leaders are last. And this was an incredibly foreign concept to them. You see, they had been arguing about who was the greatest. And this was such a preoccupation in the Jewish culture that they couldn't help but do it. Um, this is what one of the commentators said. Their preoccupation with rank and standing is in character with what we know of Judaism of the time. Rabbinic writings frequently comment on the seating order in paradise, for example, and argue that the just would sit nearer to the throne of God than even the angels. Okay, so there's this argument about 
what's going on. In fact, there were some teachings that would talk about and argue about who would sit in what order. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is, this is talked about. Do the elders sit first or the priests? Do these people get to sit here or who gets to sit in this order? And they would argue about this and write about this. And they were preoccupied with rank and status and order. Who's first? This is on a much smaller scale, but, but some of you are very competitive, aren't you? Um, I'm, I'm a competitive person, and I remember distinctly in second grade doing the mad minute, right? You have your paper in front of you, your pencil, teacher says go, and you're doing like, seven plus four is eleven! Yes, I'm smart! Right? You're going through, and you get all these really easy, these really easy math problems, and I remember, no joke, getting to the end, flipping it over, and it's quiet, but everyone across the, across the classroom starts going, they're third. Oh, it's fourth. Man, I was fourth this time. The teacher would turn around, we all put our hands down, the teacher would turn around, First, I was. We wanted to be first at a math problem. And then we went to recess and we raced and raced and raced and jumped off swings to see who could be first. Right? And that was hugely important to a bunch of little boys running around the schoolyard. And I don't think we always get rid of that, do we? Um, We may not say things out loud. Um, we, We may harbor that in our hearts. But when someone gets a raise... And, and we thought we should have gotten the raise. Um, when we play uh, softball <laughs> with a bunch of washed out, I mean really good athletes during the summer. Um, in, in all different phases of life, things that are very important to us begin to, to distract us as we seek status and as we compete against each other. And so you, you see the disciples saying, I'm greatest. Wait, are you greatest? No, dude, you're Peter. You keep putting your foot in your mouth, okay? I think a lot of this stems from what just happened. Three of the 12 get to go up on the mountain and see Elijah and Moses and Jesus and all his glory. They come down the mountain and nine disciples were trying to cast a demon out but couldn't. That is perfect, fertile ground for an argument, right? They, they were split up and then these ones failed and frankly, these ones did as well, up on the mountain. And now we're, we're arguing about who's the greatest. And it won't stop. In chapter 10, it happens again, and we see status and order is important. Okay, as James and John will ask if they can sit on Jesus' right and left hand, because that's the honorable position. That's the higher status. And that means they get to go, nah, 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 to the other disciples that didn't make it up there. And, and so it, it's, it's an adult conversation with very childish motivations. And that's exactly what's going on. And so Jesus sits them down, and in a way that only he can do, he introduces his kingdom again as an upside-down kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. Because he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That doesn't make much sense. The famous philosopher Plato said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? It's amazing. Pride is at the root of most sin. And here we see it again because Jesus says, if you want to be first, notice that he doesn't squelch their ambition. If you want to be first, this is how you go about it. See, and this is where a lot of Christians miss it, I think. Well, well, the last shall be first, so let's stay back here and be last. <laughs> um, that's not exactly what Jesus is saying. In fact, in your notes there, I say redirect your ambition. Redirect your ambition. Don't lose your ambition. It's okay to want to be first. 
But Jesus says, you're actually not going to be first unless you're last. So he flips things on their head. You see, they were arguing about status. They were arguing about honor. They were arguing about their abilities. And Jesus says, you're going about it the wrong way. Bishop J.C. Ryle had this to say about pride, and this is just an amazing quote. Pride is one of the commonest sins which beset human nature. It is a subtle sin. It rules and reigns in many a heart without being detected and can even wear the clothing of humility. It is a most soul-ruining sin. It prevents repentance, keeps people back from Christ, checks brotherly love, and nips spiritual concern in the bud. Let us watch against it and be on our guard. Of all clothing, none is so graceful, none wears so well, and none is so rare as true humility. And that is where Jesus is headed here. He's headed to, if you want to really be first, then you have to learn to be last. And see, the disciples aren't making the connection. He's teaching them constantly, I'm going to be killed. Now that is last, okay? That's last. Being killed for something, um, that is a low, dishonorable sort of thing. And Jesus is teaching them, even through what's going to happen to me, guys, is how you can also be first. Because we see that Jesus' death, we know from the rest of the Old Testament, it's not a tragedy. It's triumphant. It is finished. And three days later, Jesus is out of the grave. The stone is rolled away. The guards are all in a stupor. And Jesus has conquered death. And so he's first. He's first. And he got there by being last. And so then Jesus illustrates this in in a very poignant way. And I was going to bring a little one on stage, but it just might have been too distracting. But I think what Jesus does here is, is so humbling for the disciples. Look at verse 36. And he took a child. So there was a child in the house, maybe one of Peter's kids or Andrew's kids. And he, he, he come here, kid, come here, grabs the kid. And this word literally means puts him in the crook of his elbow. Okay, so he, he kind of holds the kid right here. Grabs a child and says, verse 37, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And this is hard for us to understand. I read it, I read through the passage several times and thought I had it. And then I looked at the commentaries and my presuppositions on children uh, were wrong. You see, I have the cutest girl in this whole church as my baby. And um, I value her and treasure her and take care of her and change her diaper and, and look out for her. And no doubt parents in the first century did as well. But you have to understand that the children are viewed in a much different way than they are today. Let me read you um, some of these things. Societies with high infant mortality rates and great demand for human labor cannot afford to be sentimental about infants and youth. Like That kid needs to grow up and needs to get to work because we've got to make food and we've got to sustain ourselves. Um, another quote, no romanticized notion of children existed in the first century. Children had no power, no status, no rights. They were not considered full persons and were regarded as somewhat akin to property. They were dependent, vulnerable, unlearned, and entirely subject to the authority of the father. The rabbis classified, okay, here we go again, the rabbis talking about status. They classified children with the deaf, the dumb, the weak-minded, and the slaves. So that's the category that, that kids were in, okay? Nowhere else in this period do we find children appealed to as examples to be imitated. So, so scholars have done 
analyses of all the writings from this period and cannot find one example of children being held up as something to be imitated or looked at. To become as a child basically means to recognize one's insignificance. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. And that's why it's hard to accept. Because he he grabs a child. He shows them this child. And he says, this one who has no status, no rights. Okay, this is one that, that is an example of what I'm talking about. So in verse 35, he said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And in verse 37, then he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And I think the connection that he's making here is not, in this passage, be like a child. Okay, there's, there, are other, there are other passages where he says, have faith like a child, have childlike faith. But I think the point here is, be like Jesus with children. Because, see, Jesus loved kids. We'll see that again in chapter 10. He, he, he's able to stop doing important things and have these little kids come up and, and grab his legs and come up and hold him in his arm. And Jesus loves children. And that was not something a rabbi did. Because children are of low status and they'll bring you down. If, if you were to have, you know, if I were to have Alice come up right now and give her a hug, you would all go, aww. But in first century Israel, they'd say, what is he doing? Get, get that kid out of here. Okay, that's, that's embarrassing. That's humiliating. And so I think what Jesus is, is doing here is he's saying, see, I, see how I accept this little one and see how even though he is the lowest of the low on the status ladder, I love him and I accept him. And that's how you are to be, guys, with everyone. Because, see, these guys were arguing about, I want to be first, I want to be first. And in that ambition, they were leaving out those who would hold them down, who would hold them back. We've got to cut the lines because you're going to hold me back. I, gotta, I, can't have, I can't be friends with you because I want to be first and you're not. And so Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The way to be first is to accept the last, to become one of the last, to be the servant of all. To be the one who's willing to, as Jesus did in John 13, get down on his knees and clean dirty, filthy feet. That is what he is saying. Be first by being last. Roman numeral number three, as we move into the last scene. Jesus welcomes. Do you? And he continues the theme here. Jesus is a welcoming person in this passage. And my question to all of us is, do we welcome the way Jesus did. Because letter A, John still doesn't get it. John still does not get it. And John is one of the three privileged disciples. He was one of the three that were in when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. The other nine were outside. Uh, The transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are the only ones up on the mountain with Jesus. In Gethsemane, okay, Peter, James, and John get to be closer to Jesus than all the other ones. He's in the elite of the disciples. And I can't help but think John's trying to change the subject. Isn't that what we do if something gets embarrassing or a little awkward? Hey, how about the Dodgers, right? Let's change the subject because this is getting way too personal. And John comes up and says, Hey, hey, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And I can just, Jesus is going, <laughs> did, did you not hear what I just said? I can even see him looking at the kid that he's still holding in his arms says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following who? Us. 
Not you, Jesus. He wasn't following us. He wasn't following us. He's not one of us. And what I think John is doing here is changing the subject, missing the point, and giving Jesus another opportunity to teach. Because the disciples, again, just failed. So how in the world can John be angry at someone casting out demons successfully when he and his fellow disciples couldn't cast out a demon? See, they just failed miserably in front of a huge crowd. And then Jesus comes down, gets frustrated with them, and heals the man. And now here John goes, yeah, we saw this guy, and he, and he was casting out demons, and we, t- we told him to stop. And the thought of ours should be, Why? You, you couldn't do it, so he should be doing it. And, and it's clear here that he's doing it in the name of Jesus. And a lot of details are left out, so there's, there's much left to speculation. And you can talk about that in your community groups this week. But Jesus' response is really important here. John is a little worked up, and he's trying to change the subject. And Jesus' point is to not be divisive. Don't be divisive. Stop being so critical that you're dividing everyone up into camps, which again is this thing about status. Who's in that camp? Who's in our camp? Who's in that camp? Jesus says, do not stop him. Why? For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. There's a a very similar passage in Numbers where Moses and the 70 elders that God chose have the Holy Spirit upon them and they're, they're prophesying and they're inside the tent. And then these two guys outside the tent start prophesying because the Spirit's on them. And Joshua's like, uh, Moses, tell them to stop. And Moses is like, why? If the Lord wants someone else prophesying, go for it. Okay? Because Moses is not, is not clinging to his soul power. I am Moses and you are all my underlings. No, he wants... He wants God to do what God's going to do through whoever he's going to do it through. That's why Moses is the meekest man who ever lived. Because he understood that he needed the help and he needed God to do what he was going to do. He didn't need to be seen as first and in charge. Same thing here. Jesus says, let him go. He's doing it with the right motivation and, and he's not doing anything that would make him disown me. He's not going to cast out the demon and attribute it to Satan. Like we saw before when the Pharisees called Jesus a a demon-possessed man or that he was under Satan's rule because he was casting out demons by Satan. Don't be divisive. And see, we can take this to another extreme. We can take this to an extreme where we value unity above truth. And we've got to find the middle here. Because there, there's a point where we just accept anybody for whatever they say, no matter what they believe. And there's a point where, on the other hand, we divide everyone up into camps so much that there is no unity. And so we're always struggling to find the balance to this. And so that's why I think this quote helps so much. From a 17th century theologian, he said, "...in essentials, unity." Okay, this is why, this is why we're not going to let a Mormon teach class on Sunday morning here. Because we're not unified with that Mormon. Because he does not believe in our God. In non-essentials, liberty. Okay, and the things that the Bible is less clear on, there is liberty to disagree. In all things, charity or love. And that should rule the day. And that's what Jesus is saying. Okay, that charity, love should rule the day. 
And you can see this even in John's life, right? So John asked the question, and then like 60 years later when he's writing uh, the first, second, third John in Revelation, John is, is continually focused on false teachers. So, so John understood this. He didn't say, oh, well, they said Jesus, so that's okay. Right? They, they said they believe in God, so that's okay. No, John is very, is very particular. Test the spirits. Okay? So there's a, there's a middle ground, and Jesus is emphasizing that. In the last verse, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. And this is a very common thing in the Middle East. Um, when we were in Israel, we went to this shopkeeper's um, shop in, in the old city, and he'd change our money, and we get shekels instead of dollars. And, and every time we showed up, he'd give us some Sprite, or he'd give us some tea, or he'd offer us something, because that's just the hospitable thing to do, and that's how you treat people in the Middle East. And so Jesus said, if someone's hospitable to you, but he qualifies it, if they're hospitable to you because you belong to Christ, because you're one of mine, if the motivation is because of unity, because of Christ, then that person will by no means lose his reward. So again, Jesus flips things on their head and he says, look, it is a good thing to be hospitable. Give someone a glass of water and that will be rewarded. You see, not, not just the big things, not just the casting out of demons, not just the healing, not just these massive, powerful showings are what matters, but what matters is caring for those who are last. And so all of this applies to our life, doesn't it? In the way we treat others, in the way you treat your employees, in the way you, intre- you treat your employer, in the way you treat your children, in the way you treat your parents. And this defines the Christian life, which is why Jesus hammers it. This is why he continues to go at it. And the hymn, Rock of Ages, one of the verses says this, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. See, these disciples were being self-sufficient. These disciples were being pursuers of magnificence and pursuers of the big and the spectacular and they wanted to attain status and the christian life is one of surrender it's one of humility it is the exact opposite of what this world teaches we'll continue to see this as we continue to march through mark they're not getting it and so let's be careful this morning that we don't go got it This is a lifelong process, a lifelong process. We will never attain it fully, but we must always pursue it fully. Why don't we pray to the God who is able to make us humble, who is able to keep us from pride. Father, this morning we ask you to humble us. Um, No matter the pain, Uh, No matter the humiliation, God, may we be the kind of people that put ourselves last and that are able to, to serve those who are last and not always seek to rub shoulders with the elite and with the rich and the wealthy and the influential and the cool. Father, may we see people the way you do. May we see needs and may we serve those people. And may we serve as you served and love as you loved. Even today, even now as we go to our classes, 
Father, help us to be last and to, to serve, that in doing that, we may be first. In Jesus' name, amen.